The Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by BowlandBranch.com, the company that makes luxury bedding affordable. Get the nicest sheets you've ever owned for about half the price of what stores are charging. Order right now, and they'll give you 20% off your order, plus free shipping. Go to BowlandBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, and use the promo code CULTURE. And by Club W, leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. Answer just six simple questions at clubw.com, and their algorithm will create a palette profile just for you. Get wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. For 50% off your first order, go to clubw.com culture. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest All Hail Charlotte Rampling Edition. It's Wednesday, January 20th, 2016, and on today's program, we're going to talk about 45 Years, the powerful film about how a revelation can rock a marriage, for which Charlotte Rampling was nominated for the Best Actress Oscar. And then London Spy, the new BBC thriller starring Ben Wishaw as a young man who finds love and then loses it in mysterious circumstances. And then we'll be joined by Leon Nafok to discuss The Trials of Alice Goffman, a new story about the sociologist behind the acclaimed and controversial portrait of young black men in urban Philadelphia on the run. Joining me today is Slate's movie critic, Dana Stevens. Hello, Dana. Hello, Julia. And back after a a while, Slate culture critic and editor of Outward, Slate's LGBTQ section, June Thomas. Hey there. So nice to be here. I'm very excited. We are so happy to have you here today. Steve is still out on book leave. He'll be back in February. But for the moment, we're going to revel in June's presence. And we've also gone pretty Brit this show. Yes. We've, gone, we've got two British topics up front with 45 Years and London Spy, and then we're also going to devote our Slate Plus segment to remembering Alan Rickman, the truly wonderful British actor who died at the end of last week after we taped last week's show. I also wanted to note before we dig into our first conversation, just to remind our listeners that we have a great mom and dad are fighting live show coming up on Tuesday, January 26th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. There's still tickets available. You'll get to see Allison and Dan uh, putting on a terrific show with wonderful guests, including some children's books illustrators and the First Lady of New York City, Charlene McRae. Uh, you can get tickets for that at slate.com slash live. All right, let's begin with 45 Years. This is a film written and directed by Andrew Hay. He's also the writer and director of the film Weekend, which we all discussed and loved several years ago. He was also one of the creators of Looking, the show about gay life on HBO that I suppose I should acknowledge here my husband worked on. So it's no surprise that I'm an Andrew Hay booster. This film stars Charlotte Rampling and Tom Courtenay as a married couple on the eve of their 45th anniversary. And at the beginning of the film, the husband, Jeff, receives a letter about the discovery of a body of a woman that he once loved. Let's listen to a clip. What is it? A letter. Yes, I know, but from? It's in German. Yeah. What's it say? Well, I can't remember the verbs as well as the nouns, but, but I think it says they found her. Found who? Uh, her body, anyway. God, who? Jeff? They found Katya. Oh. Y- you know who I'm talking about, don't you? Of course. But I-, I remember telling you, clear as day. Of course I remember. I mean, 
It was a long time ago. Yeah, I know I told you about my Katya. She's been there over 50 years. Now something in the freezer. Now they've found her. All right, I think you can get some sense from the quiet, measured texture of that clip what sort of movie this is. But Dana, you included this on your year's end top 10 list. And because you did it alphabetically, it was right at the top of the list <laughs> with its with its numerical title. Tell us uh, what you liked about the film, what struck you about it, and why you thought it was one of the year's best. Oh, yeah, I loved it. I mean, if, if, if I did rank my list, this would be very near the top. This might have been, along with Carol, one of my two favorite movies of the year. It's just beautiful. I also got to interview Charlotte Rampling, which was a great pleasure after the film came out. And that's up, up on Slate now, too. What did I love so much about this film? I mean, I think that that scene shows you the combination of, of quiet and intensity that this film brings together. That's in mm-hmm. the first, that's the very beginning, right? That's essentially the first real dialogue scene of the movie. She walks around with a dog on some open heaths for right, like yeah, we, a bunch of minutes beforehand, <laughs> right. probably. Actually, every the, the, this film is very precisely structured. Once you watch it a couple of times, you notice that there's a certain amount of time, one week leading up to the 45-year anniversary party that they're planning. And every day, for every day of that week, you begin by seeing Charlotte Rampling walking the dog or doing some other sort of morning errand, and then coming back to this domestic space where she and her husband are, in their quiet British way, really having it out in their relationship is sort of falling apart over this revelation in the letter. And uh, I think I, I just, I, that combination of quiet and intensity plus the two extraordinary performances of Tom Courtney and Charlotte Rampling, just, it just gave this movie this, um, this I want to say kind of theatrical intimacy in the sense that it was, it was such a chamber piece. But at the same time, it's very filmic, I think. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, I saw it on the big screen and the small screen. And the big screen made a big difference for this movie. There were visual details. I won't get into what they are for fear of spoilers, but that you sort of you really needed to be looking carefully to see. So I love that attentiveness and small scale that Hay works in. Now I desperately need you to tell me what those details were. They had to do with a pattern on a sheet. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Is that revealing too much? I don't know. I don't know at all. The listeners will have to see. I, I, I was reading Tony Scott's review in the Times, A.O. Scott's review, and I, I love that he said that there's something of the horror film about this movie, mm-hmm. even though there is no supernatural. It is, in a way, a ghost story. It's the story yeah. of the ghost of Katya, the dead love of Jeff, this woman who's been found after 50 years frozen in a, in a fjord or a hole glacier. in the ground. Glacier. Glacier. Yeah. Which they pronounce glacier. Glacier. <laughs> is that how they say it? No idea. I feel, I feel like they pronounce it Don't glacier. Don't ask you. She's not an expert anymore. She's no, been exactly. here too long. Exactly, <laughs> but the, but the the ghost of Katya really haunts mm-hmm. the movie, and so it is sort of a, a a love triangle in which one of the legs of the triangle is is always absent. June, what did you make of the film? You hadn't seen it until we made you we dragged you out this weekend to to go and watch it. What did you, what did you make of it? You did. You forced me to to leave my television for a few hours, and I absolutely loved it. I I mean, I adore Tom Courtney and I have forever, and Charlotte Rampling, of course, is a treasure. And so I should have known that I would like it, but it's the kind of movie that, unfortunately for me at least, is kind of rare these days where you go out of the cinema and if you've been lucky enough to go with someone, you can't stop talking about it for days and days and something will happen and then you'll be like, oh yeah, hey, and you know what I've just thought? You know, it stays with you. It kind of haunts you like Katja haunts their relationship. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. I mean, I think there's three things I really love about it. But the first is that it is so unsentimental and unstinting about old age. They have fallen into a happy routine. She has her walks. He has his tea. 
Uh, he has this occasional political outburst. It, it begins to seem that he's you know, not always been the easiest man you learn from their friends as they prepare for the party. But in general, they know what they've committed to. They've committed to it, and they're heading up to celebrating that commitment. And this discovery suddenly pulls out all of the foundation underneath them. For both of them, he begins to think about the life that he might have had if Katja hadn't died. She begins to wonder suddenly if she was just a second choice and she's the the bummer of a life that he ended up with because he didn't get the life he wanted and everything she's devoted herself to and built begins to seem a little bit hollow. And the process through which they're somewhat frozen relationship, not frozen in a cold, frosty, empty way, but, you know, it's it's stuck in place like a glacier. As it begins to shift and slide, those emotions that they play are so rich and deep and twisted and dark and petty and, you know, sort of jealousy of a 50-year-old dead woman, insecurity about one's sexual and romantic appeal, nostalgia f- for the source of their love and the moment when they connected. I mean, all of the the subtle portraits that you might get in a classic romantic comedy, but the beginnings of a young love, you see them almost in reverse as this thing may or may not be unraveling. So I love that it takes the emotions of older people seriously and doesn't just romanticize them. I can't quite remember what the point of Amour was, the French movie about aged love, but I believe that the love at the center of it was fairly idealized. And then it was death that was unstintingly depicted, right? And the the process of losing the love through old age and time, but not through the same psychological subcurrents that can unsettle any relationship, right? Is that... Yeah, I think that's safe to say. And I, I, when I was talking to, to Charlotte Rampling, I, I actually talked to her about this old age versus youth, and her, her answer was very surprising and sort of off kilter, as a lot of her answers were. I had said, well, you've, you had seen the DVD of Weekend, you knew about looking, you knew that Andrew Hay could work in this milieu of young gay men falling in love. But what made you know that he could work with people further on in their lives and, and make a story about, about love among older people? And and she almost dismissed the difference and sort of said, well, they're just feelings, <laughs> you know, they're just relationships. <laughs> in a way, there isn't any old and young when it comes to being in love. There's always that insecurity and there's always that possibility, even after 45 years, that everything could fall apart in a week. Yeah, right. It's really striking to me that we're in a time where there are some really outstanding movies involving older people, movies and TV shows. It, maybe it's just that I'm getting older and I'm more aware of them, but I do think it's something about actors of a certain power still being active and, you know, people being more interested in these different stories. But I'm thinking of Grandma, of several films from the last from last year. I wrote a piece about how uh, last 2015 was the year of the sort of LGBTQ senior because, you know, Grace and Frankie, Transparent, in a way there are all these shows about queer septuagenarians, but this is about some straight septuagenarians. So I, I also find that very exciting. And I think it's great that they are taken seriously in a way that it's not always sentimentalized and awe, an old couple. It's like you don't stop having feelings from the past. Like the past is, as I believe the title of the book, that the story is based on another country. Yes, but we still are, you know, we're not exactly it's it's maybe has the same geography as the one we live in. Even so, it's just there's things have changed, but they're also it's still present. And Katja is still in his head. If I can make maybe a quibble, one thing that I didn't quite feel convinced by. Apparently, I haven't had a chance to read the story yet. I ordered it from the library, but I'm now very curious about it. Apparently, it's from Jeff's point of view, from the man's point of view. And you would say that the movie is more or less from Kate's point of view, the woman's point of view. And I 
I one thing that just didn't quite convince me was that she would be the person who had the doubts. Um, you know, so he, in him, when Jeff is resolving unresolved feelings, in a way it, it kind of dislodges her, it, it disturbs her. But that didn't quite make psychological sense to me because she is, in by any measure, the kind of the dominant one in their relationship. It didn't make sense to me that she would be that disturbed by somebody from Jeff's past when, in fact, she is the one who is more together. She's the one who's more professional. She's the one who's from a, a posher background. She, her health is better. Her, you know, she, just in by any measurement, I mean, she looks amazing and he looks like a, an old man. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's it, everybody would be aware of those things. And so while well, I think I would be far more convinced of his being jealous of something in her past, we do see one reason why she would be disturbed, but I, I still wasn't quite, didn't quite get to me. But isn't that where the power of her characterization derives from? That it is, um, even from our history with Charlotte Rampling. I mean, it's Charlotte Rampling, you know, right. sort of the most icily pulled together, impenetrable, gorgeous. I mean, she's just mm-hmm. has always stood for this sort of. Um, as a love interest, you know, and in, in her youth as well, as as this person who can't be somehow penetrated or knocked down, mm-hmm. right? And, and she so, can't quite ever be attained. Yeah. And so here she is having been attained. She's she's attained. She's attained by this guy. And then yeah. the notion that this is what where she settled was on this fellow who's turned into kind of a doddering crank and maybe is a doddering crank for whom she was a second choice all along. It makes her feel like maybe she's wasted her whole life. And there's sort of a a rage that's built up based on that sense of, uh, she doesn't seem haughty or superior, but that sense of her own worth and the sense that anyone might have of what, what is the value of my life. Which actually brings me to one of the, to the second thing that I really love about the movie, which is its grasp of ambiguity. And I think it's mm. that quality of letting things be a little bit ambiguous that is part of why you talk about it for a week and you think about it for yeah. a week and you wonder what the true nature of their relationship is. And it's so perfect because, of course, every love is ambiguous because mm-hmm. it's lives in between the ideas that two people have about it and they've agreed to agree mm-hmm. but what they're actually agreeing on you can never totally know and i think my favorite scene in the film is probably the the final scene so eventually we get to the party uh and at the party uh tom courtney jeff gives a speech in which he sort of sums up his his love and and what their marriage has meant to him. Mm-hmm. And the speech is so perfectly written to be, and so perfectly performed and delivered to be readable in a bunch of different ways. Mm-hmm. And when you first hear the speech, or when I first hear the speech in the film, you think, okay, he's he's settled back down. This is it. It's going to work. Like, they've made it through this tough week. And the speech plausibly reads as something that that could conclude this period of disruption. But then it becomes clear as the rest of the scene goes on that the speech is interpretable in many different ways by many different people. And that ability to write for that kind of ambiguity, I think, is so incredible and so impressive and made this film seem so much richer and more psychologically astute than anything else I've seen in a very long time. The last scene is extraordinary, and the and the last shot particularly. Yes. I, mean, I mean, everybody who's talked about this film has talked about the ending, and uh, I won't give away anything about the ending. But when you watch the ending, pay very close attention not just to the speech, but to her reaction I to know. it, and then to them dancing to the song afterwards. Yeah. They dance to "Smoke Gets in Your Eyes," which right. is this song that's had different meanings throughout the course of the film. Right. Yeah, it's an incredibly impressive piece of work. 
no movie should be reduced to the sum of its Oscar haul, but I was <laughs> thrilled that Charlotte Rampling was nominated for her performance and bummed that it didn't get more because I just think it's maybe the best movie I saw last year. In fact, I think I've I've now changed my Oscar my one Oscar race that I care about <laughs> to to rooting for Charlotte Rampling for best actress. All right, the film is 45 years starring Charlotte Rampling and Tom Courtenay, written and directed by Andrew Hay. Go see this movie. I cannot say strongly enough. You should go see this movie and then come talk to us about it on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, before we move on to our next topic, Dana, let's have a word from our first sponsor. Yes, Julia, our sponsor today is Bowl & Branch, the maker of fine sheets and bedding products. There's one important thing you can do to make sure you have a good day, and that is getting a good night's sleep the night before. Bowl & Branch has set out to reinvent sheets and bedding with the purpose of making your nights more comfortable than ever. Julia, talk to me about sheets. Until I got my bowl and branch sheets are really the first nice sheets I've ever owned. I think before that I was just I was just liked a good jersey t shirt fabric sheet. Ah. No, you're not, not a jersey a, sheet. Not girl? a t shirt sheet girl. No. Only for wintertime though, because they get too hot. In the I like I like a crispness, I like a cleanness. I like it to be almost a little bit scratchy in its softness. Like the paradoxical sheet. Yes, the perfect sheet. I'm I really think that the amount of pleasure derived from having a truly great set of sheets on your bed should not be underestimated. And I feel like too many people take too long to grow up about sheets. Sure, when you're in college, you leave a set of sheets on the bed for like a semester. If you're a guy, maybe a month or two. If you're a little cleaner, uh, you have one set. You know, it's a it's a pain. But I feel like one of the greatest things about grown-up life is like taking sheets seriously, really changing your sheets once a week, having that really crisp, tight bed feeling. I also really, I have a habit that drives my sister batty, but luckily my husband tolerates, or at least will, until our 45th anniversary of of kind of like rubbing my feet against each other, against the sheets. I think like maybe my toes get a little cold and that like the kind of rubbing helps with circulation or something like that. But anyway, when you get to do that the first night of a fresh pair of sheets, the best. It's the best. All right. Well, if you want to be like Julia and rub your feet together under some amazingly soft sheets, and I would say that my Bowl and Branch sheets qualify as both crisp and soft somehow, then go online to Bowl and Branch, that's B-O-L-L and branch.com, and you can try a pair risk-free for 30 nights. So to get 20% off your entire order of Bowl and Branch, go to bowlandbranch.com today and use the promo code CULTURE. Okay, Julia, back to the show. All right, on to London Spy. This is a new thriller from the BBC. It's created by Tom Rob Smith, who's a thriller writer, but I think this is the first time he's created a TV show. Uh, and it stars Ben Wishaw, beautiful, lilting, willowy little Ben Wishaw, who played Keats in Bright Star, who plays the fidgety Q in the current Bond megalith, uh, and who's generally a charming actor in whose presence to be. He plays a young, disaffected, kind of partied out gay guy who meets a strapping young jogger on the banks of the Thames. And then their relationship takes a very strange turn that causes Ben Wishaw's character, Danny, to question everything that he thought he knew about his rather reserved uh, lover, Alex, and thrusts him into a world of espionage and mystery and really strange families, including Charlotte Rampling. <laughs> Who lives in a castle that literally has a drawbridge, yes. just in case you wanted to make her any more icily remote, remote and inaccessible. <laughs> her ramparts are so impressive in this film. <laughs> Rampling's ramparts. So, guys, what did you make of this show? 
June, let's start with you. I absolutely adored it. I sat down to watch it amid a million screeners where I was in not really in a mood to be impressed and I just couldn't stop watching. I sat and watched the entire five episodes in one sitting because I couldn't stop, even though there are bits of the first episode that are kind of disturbing and kind of make it hard to go straight on to the next episode. But to me, it's an amazing story. I mean, Ben Wishaw is just incredible, but it's just a fantastic, beautiful story that doesn't get told because I guess in practice it's it's sort of rare of someone who has been essentially thrown away like his parents didn't love him, probably in good part because he was gay. A guy who has a kind of a crummy job who has a good friend um, who he doesn't really appreciate, an older man, a mentor. Played sort of, by Jim Broadbent, played we by should Jim say. Broadbent. Another, another miracle of a British actor. Exactly. Played beautifully by Jim Broadbent, um, which again is a really rare example of a kind of a younger, older relationship, a, a very specifically gay relationship. I think it's a sort of a mentor-mentee thing, but there's also a kind of an unrequited love on the part of the older man, which she doesn't really want to be consummated it's but it's a it's a very specific and very well represented kind of relationship i think and just for me the journey of danny from a guy who has no future to this very believable to me transformation into a completely different kind of guy even though it's all because of the skills and the sort of innate talent that he has that never had any opportunity to be used and i just think it's a fantastic fantastic show What'd you make of it, Dana? You know, I was so excited for it because of the cast list. It was sort of like you had me. June suggested we talk about this, and I was just you had me at Ben Wishaw, Charlotte Rampling, Jim Broadbent. Of right. course, I'm going to watch a BBC, BBC show with those three in it. Um, I've only seen the first two episodes so far. I will probably keep going, but I have to say that this show is quite convoluted and hard to follow, and also extremely focused on the psychology of its two heroes, right, of, of of these two young men in love and also of Jim Broadbent as kind of a third party, mm-hmm. to the exclusion of the espionage story, almost to the point that it, halfway through the second episode, I was thinking, why is this called London Spy again? Where's the espionage mm-hmm. or the intrigue or the, you know, cloak and dagger skullduggery? I mean, obviously you want your cloak and dagger skullduggery to come with some warm human emotions, but this almost seemed like it should have been called London Guys, <laughs> you know, rather than <laughs> London Spy. Yeah. <laughs> I assume it comes roaring back in the final three episodes. I mean, the first two essentially are like, oh, don't look there. Oh, don't check that out. Oh, you don't want to know the truth. I mean, that's all just like spooky boogeyman. There's so much. Yeah, there's a lot of very dark rooms with mysterious keys and Mm -hmm. being put into apertures. And I don't know what it all is going to mean for later on. But put it this way, it's not... It's not a um, you know a Graham Greene kind of right. spy story, right. right? Where there's international forces at work. It really is, in a way, for me, almost as if the spy stuff is some kind of projection of of the Ben Wishaw character's mind. What it really, I think, is about is this man in love trying to figure out what happened, right? What is what are the unanswered questions about this person that I love? In some ways, it's another story about the unknowability of love, right? Love exactly. is you you decide that you trust another person, you mm-hmm. decide that you know another person, you trust that you know another person, and that's part of what love and an enduring relationship are about and yet you never truly can and mostly that's fine but sometimes that can be cataclysmic and so he's really trying to reckon with what he can and cannot know about Alex and his past and his psychology and his work and I'm totally along for the ride. I mean the thing I like about it is that 
I mean, we've you know, in in the era of peak TV, you've seen a lot of spy shows. You've seen a lot of spy shows with beloved actors in them. You've seen a lot of spy shows with scenes that take place in hedge mazes, if you count <laughs> if you count Homeland. Uh, you know, the opening credit sequence. I'm just like rolling my eyes. It's like, oh, it's a cryptology thing, mm-hmm. and there's yearning bodies falling into voids, aging yeah. for the human touch. Ugh, you know, like, <laughs> like whatever. The bar, the poor bar. That I mean, if if this show had just like dropped on our laps 15 years ago. We would be like, ah, and they're like, another prestige drama. Exactly. However, I really like the way it suggests in a multi-generational way the squandering of talent and potential that came from how society treated gay people for so long. Mm-hmm. You get that in Jim Broadbent's story about how he was treated when he was a spy in previous decades. You get that uh, in sort of a middle generation as you encounter uh, Alex's family and learn a little bit more about him and his past and their regard for him and you see that in Danny's character struggling to figure out how to engage his wants and desires in personal life with his place in society and and the opportunities that for the most part seem not to be before him at the beginning of the show and I think it remains to be seen how interesting the show is on this subject, whether that's an, a subject for the show or a gimmick for the show, mm-hmm. right? It's a spy show, but gay. It's right. a spy show, but she's crazy. It's a spy show, but, you know, you need a but at this right, point right, to distinguish right. your show. Yeah. And the portraits and acting and writing here seem so nuanced and sympathetic that it feels more than a the twist that got the thing greenlit to right. me. Right. But, but I think that's probably in the final execution. Did you feel satisfied that it had something interesting to say about that world? Yeah, I do definitely agree that it's London Spy is perhaps a bit of a stretch. There, you know, the spy plot is it's followed through on. It's not dropped at any point. It does become uh, a story about the security services and so on. But the thing that the creator is interested in, and the thing that most of the narrative is premised upon, is Danny's growing up, is Danny's development, and it's really interesting. Uh, that I've always thought of Ben Wishaw as being a kind of a, a younger version of Tom Courtney. I've always seen sort of parallels between them just in their in the thing that they're good at and also weirdly in their hair. Uh, <laughs> well, they have a similar impish kind of physicality, yeah, right? Yeah. And they also are good at like they're fantastic actors who never seem excessively actorly, which is actually a very, very difficult trick to pull off, but they've always both been really good at it. But in 45 years, Jeff, Tom Courtney's character, when he's fallen apart, he starts to smoke. And in London Spires, Ben Wishaw's character is pulling it together. He stops smoking. It's like it's, there's these weird parallels, I think, between 45 years, which is about something falling apart, and London Spy, which is about something coming together. Um, so, yeah, there is espionage, but um, it's really more, I think... I think in Britain, uh, there's such a, a, a big connection between spies and gay men. So for a lot of British viewers, I suspect that it would, maybe London Spy would immediately connote gay. But I think it's a gay story that has a security services slash spy element rather than vice versa. I see. So it's not a spy show with a gay twist. It's a gay show with a spy twist. Exactly. I like it. All right. Well, the show is London Spy. It rises above the currently high bar for excellent television. And it's only five episodes, which is a real plus in this day and age. It's a finishable thing to start. Check it out on BBC America. It premieres Thursday night. The show is London Spy. 
and come talk to us on our Facebook page about it, facebook.com slash culturefest. Let us know if you think it's a gay show with a spy twist, a spy show with a gay twist, or perhaps something else entirely that we haven't even figured out. All right, time to hear from our other sponsor. Yes, Julia, our second sponsor today is Club W, the custom delivery wine service. We've all been there. God knows I have been here. You come home after a long, exhausting day at work, and all you want is to sip a glass of wine and relax. But unless you planned ahead, you probably don't even have a bottle in your house. The horror! (laughs) So, especially if you got home too late and the liquor stores are all closed and you're screwed, you're utterly screwed. This is a situation in which Club W comes to your rescue. And since you two have both experimented with this service and I haven't, I'm going to ask you about it. Julia, June, how did you feel about your Club W wine deliveries? So the way it works is that you go on their site and you fill out, you answer a bunch of questions about your flavor preferences, and then it selects wines that will be appropriate for your palate. So I told them what I like and what kinds of wines I like, and I told them that I basically only like to drink white. And they recommend a bunch of wines. You choose the ones you want. They send you a box, and voila, there's wine at your doorstep. Uh, And we did a big taste test when I got my box with a couple friends, and I got a very, very delicious blend of Alsatian-type wine. I think it was actually made in Santa Barbara, but uh, it was super yum. And June, what was your Club W experience? Um, I have both had the sort of monthly boxes, um, which mostly I remember being so excited that uh, my first box arrived on the evening of a GOP debate, so it seemed like perfect timing, <laughs> and the wine tasted so good that night. Um, but Perfect I, for your drinking games, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But my very favorite Club W experience was you don't have to go with their recommended box. You can you know, pick wines that you want to have sent to you. And I went with three different sparkling wines that they had available, including one really awesome uh, sparkling red wine, not a Lambrusco, but uh, one that was very pleasant drinking in the winter. I love a sparkling wine. And if I was a fancier and more alcohol tolerant person, I would open a bottle of bubbles every single evening. That would be, that's my <laughs> Just idea. to celebrate coming home. Exactly. That's my idea of like the most sophisticated, fancy thing to do. If I was a fancy lady, that's what I do. But I really enjoyed all of the sparkling wines that were in that Club W box. So right now, Club W is offering Slate Culture Gabfest listeners 50% off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash culture. All right, Julia, back to the show. All right. Joining us for our third topic is Leon Nafak. Hi, Leon. Hi. How are you? Great. How are you? Good. Uh, okay. So we are here to discuss a piece that appeared in the New York Times Magazine this past weekend. It was called The Trials of Alice Goffman, and it was an examination by Gideon Lewis Krauss of a set of controversies around the work of Alice Goffman, the acclaimed and controversial sociologist behind the book On the Run, which was a in-depth portrait of the lives of young black men in urban Philadelphia that portrayed the set of systemic obstacles that thwarted their efforts to pursue financial stability and security and, and a life that was not on the run. This is an interesting piece to come out at this time because there have been a set of examinations of this book. There was stage one, which was publication and adulation and Malcolm Gladwell calling it a, I forget exactly what, extraordinary, breathtaking something. It, it, was, an, it was anointed by Malcolm Gladwell as freaking great. <laughs> uh, then there were a set of investigations of her work over the summer prompted by an anonymous critique, probably by another sociologist, and then Chase then 
examined by a bunch of journalists, including Leon here, uh, looking at whether she had fudged some of the details and facts in her work, how real the stories were, whether and perhaps she had gotten so embedded with her sources that she might have uh, been party to a felony in some way. So there was a set of investigations there. This piece zooms out, I think, even further and suggests that the kerfuffle about her work, at least within the academy, has to do with a broader sense of insecurity and questioning within the field of sociology about what the heck it's supposed to be doing these days anyway. All right. Well, before we get into this most recent salvo, Leon, we didn't get a chance to talk to you about your piece on the show. So talk to us a little bit about Goffman, her work, and what drew you to looking at it and what you discovered, and then we'll get into to the newest installment. Yeah. Well, so, so she started spending time with this group of young black man in Philadelphia when she was an undergrad at Penn and she kind of got she kind of landed there by way of a tutoring job and through that kind of became part of this group of friends and pretty quickly decided I think to write her senior thesis on it on their life and specifically their life running from police the the the, the takeaway from the book is that uh, people in these poor uh, black neighborhoods live their lives in fear of being arrested all the time because there are bench warrants for them because they've uh, failed to pay court fees or they've uh, incurred some parole violation. So uh, I became interested in the book after a particularly aggressive critique of her book came out. It it was originally in in a publication called the New Rambler Review. Stephen Lubet uh, basically said that he didn't believe certain key facts that were in the book. And then I found out that there was this long critique that you mentioned that had been sort of passed around anonymously among sociologists. I think it was like, you know, 40-point uh, critique where the author who, who didn't sign his name or her name nitpicked at all these little details, like, why does this one character go to the laundromat? Uh, and in this other scene, he's using the washing machine in his basement. Did any of this really happen? Um, and most of it felt pretty crazy, and the tone of the thing was pretty out there uh, and hard to follow in places, but uh, there were certain things that that were hard to explain. Why did she say that she went to nine funerals during her six years uh, in this neighborhood at one point in the book, and why did she say there were 19 funerals at a different, different place in the book? Why does she refer to one character dying in 2007 and then have that character reappear in a scene that takes place in 2009? Like, stuff like that. And I don't know, I think a lot of people kind of felt like this was the opening moments these, these were the opening moments of a, of a, of a scandal like, of the sort that we were kind of f- familiar with at this point, uh, you know, professional disgrace and, and exposure. And I guess what I found after, after talking to her and after, you know, trying to carefully cross-reference, you know, the, the d- details that were highlighted in this document uh, with the book itself is that I think much of what came off as inconsistencies were just that, they, and they were the result of carelessness on her part. But that carelessness was the result of a very deliberate process of anonymization. She went out of her way to protect her sources. She changed every name. She moved dates around so that you know you couldn't uh, look at public records in order to see whether you know just to figure out who was on trial or who had a court date on a particular day. She changed locations. She basically like tried to abstract uh, this general truth about this neighborhood away from the particulars in order to uh, protect her sources. And she didn't just do that out of the goodness of her heart, although she may have chosen to do that anyway, but because uh, you pointed out, I thought very strongly in your piece, of the requirements of 
institutional, uh, in, review, institutional boards. review boards, which yeah. essentially control social science research and universities, which we should say at this point are often the only places where people can do that kind of work because it takes so long. Mm -hmm. But they require, in order for academics to get permission to do the work, that there be this level of anonymization and essentially deception. Yeah, I think institutional review boards came about as a result of a law that was meant to protect human subjects in medical trials, but they applied to social science as well. And some of the sociologists uh, that I spoke to and anthropologists that I spoke to were frustrated by these rules because in some cases they wanted to use real names. They wanted to have their work be verifiable and fact-checkable, but they weren't allowed to. And I think Goffman's book was made particularly vulnerable because of the anonymization and anonymization process that she very enthusiastically undertook like she burned her notes she you know she it's not like she reluctantly followed these rules she she wanted to she wanted she was worried that these people would be exposed but in the end you have a book that that tells all these super specific stories and you meet all these individual characters and it feels like journalism but then like as i learned during this piece the particulars aren't really the point um, for sociologists like they are trying to come to general truths. They are trying to make generalizations. And I guess my kind of takeaway from this whole thing was that I wish she was a journalist. Yeah. <laughs> I wish she I wished she could have done six years of, of reporting on a on a neighborhood like this and, and written it, you know, as a as something like a reported memoir where she would have followed various rules of journalism, you know, not defaulted to anonymization. The way that you write about the difference between the methodology of what we think of as journalism, like the Adrian Nicole LeBlanc book about a Hispanic family in the Bronx, right? That's that's embedded journalism of a kind. And this is something else. It's it's a methodology in which you're encouraged to burn your field notes, you know, mm -hmm. which to a journalist sort of sounds like, well, that sounds like a great excuse to just make shit up, <laughs> you know? So I can, I can see both how she might have written an excellent book about a community that she was truly embedded in and in which she truly respected, and that there could still be something exploitive about the whole project. There is another, you know, line of crit criticism against the book that says, it portrays poor black people in an, in, a, in an unfairly unflattering light that, that makes cartoons of them and treats them as if they are all criminals and, and, and only serves to reinforce stereotypes of black criminality. I mean, the problem with her methodology is that it then becomes hard to refute that line of critique. Mm -hmm. Because if the, if the methodology of the ethnographer is, I'm going to meet a bunch of people, family and friends, business associates, I'm going to spend six years with them... And then I'm going to change all their names and all the dates and all of the exact details almost perfectly with a few bad transpositions that makes the whole thing look shoddy so that it's not quite them. And then I'm going to burn all my notes, except for a couple of notebooks I found that I showed the Times reporter. And then I'm going to use this story to explain what it's like to be a young black man in a, in a big northeastern city. It's that final piece that where the methodology falls apart to me, whether you're a journalist or a sociologist. Yeah, I mean, there's a set of conventions around how you would tell that story journalistically. There's a set of conventions around how you would tell it sociologically. There's a set of fights within sociology about how and what to do that. But fundamentally, whenever you're extrapolating from one small story, it becomes difficult to refute people who would want to use that set of her set of conclusions for ill. Yeah, and I think the burden you take on as a as a writer or as a chronicler of the world when when you when you make that leap when you say the people I'm writing about or the things I'm describing don't just stand for themselves, they stand for this much bigger thing. That's a leap and sociology is all about that leap. Like the whole point of of an ethnography is to is to this is what she said to me when I when I interviewed her. She said the point of ethnography isn't to like 
describe these individuals exactly right or or, or put down the, the, the details of their lives for the for the record. It's it's to it's to look at them as windows onto something bigger, and I think that's what makes people uncomfortable too. Like I think it's always hard to know how much you can generalize mm-hmm. away from one person's experience. But that's sort of the, that's sort of the whole point of this exercise, I think. That's what makes me mad because one of the things that I'm most frustrated about in life almost is how there are these people at universities who are doing really interesting work and it's not accessible even to me. I say even to me in a perhaps a little self-aggrandizing <laughs> way, but like I'm smart, I'm curious, and when I try and read their work, I kind of can't because it's written in some gobbledygook language that I can't really parse as English. Or if it's written in this really accessible way, it's not really trustworthy. And that makes me mad because, again, there's these smart people doing this work that very few people get to do. Because if a journalist or a journalistic style writer spends six years with a community, there's probably something gone wrong at some in some level. Like, that's not a sustainable way to make a living. So probably you've kind of you know, lush your way in terms of writing the book or you've gotten too deep in the community. Like, they're the only people who can do it, and yet we can't, you know, I think even if it says, I mean, and it seems from you, I've not had a chance to read her book yet, but, you know, from what everybody, including you, has said, Leon, she's very clear, these are the rules of my genre or whatever it is. But if it's there in the nonfiction section, and if it's, you know, lined up next to a work of journalism that's following the traditional rules, which are, yes, exploitative uh, in some way, then it's hard to, in your head, know, you know, to process it differently. We know how to distinguish between fact and fiction, but we don't really know how to discriminate between journalism and social ethnography in our heads, I think. And that frustrates me like mad. Do you think that she's in the wrong field, Leon? Do you think that she should just leave <laughs> academia behind and go write a random family-style journalistic well, like, book? Well, the, the, the end of that of the Times piece kind of indicated that she was thinking about it, right? There's like a line where she she's at a party or something, and she says to someone offhandedly, like, oh, yeah, I'm thinking of quitting my job. Maybe she'll start following our rules instead. I wonder if her <laughs> department head was glancing over that. <laughs> Uh, well, it ends with a note of her recommitting. Leon, thanks so much for coming and talking to us about Alice Goffman and her work. Thanks for having me. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. How's my Steve? <laughs> Dana, give us your endorsement. You've got two more weeks to work on that Steve impersonation. <laughs> uh, well, because we're going to be talking about the great actor Alan Rickman only in a Slate Plus segment, and because of the timing of his death, we didn't get to do a full-on segment, I will endorse one of his movies that, in all the talk about Alan Rickman last week, I didn't hear that many people mentioning this title, because it was, why would they? It's sort of a small movie that went under the radar. But have either of you ever seen Bottle Shock? No. No, it's this little wine nerd movie from 2008 that stars Alan Rickman as a wine merchant in London who, this is based loosely on on a true story, who goes to California, discovers Californian wines. This is back in the 70s when the idea that American wine could be anywhere near European wine was complete anathema to the wine snob, which is what Rickman's character is. And, uh, And it's just about this journey that he takes to California, this vintner that he meets, played by Bill Pullman, the son of this vintner, who's this sort of gonzo wine nerd played by Chris Pine. It was the first time I ever saw Chris Pine in anything. <laughs> and I completely fell for him. Chris Pine is great in this movie. And when I heard later on that he had been cast, you know, in the William Shatner role as Captain Kirk in the new Star Trek, the first thing I thought was the wine kid from <laughs> Bottle Shock. So, um, so Bottle Shock is basically a movie about pleasure. It's sort of about this dour British 
wine merchant who thinks he knows everything and is very set in his ways and, you know, wears the cravat and all of that, traveling up and down the coast of groovy California in the early 70s and, uh, and tasting different wines. And in particular, in my review of this movie, and I thought of this after hearing about his death last week, there's this wonderful, almost wordless scene where Rickman's character pulls over to this roadside stand, has some guacamole and <laughs> chips from like a sort of taco truck. He's never had guacamole or probably even avocados before in his life, right? In Britain right, in the right. 70s, no, June, no, no. Nobody's, plus, nobody's eating guacamole. Anybody who did, no, no guacamole and avocados were always eaten when they were rock hard, which is to say not eaten. <laughs> <laughs> right. They were like garnishes on buffets yeah. or something like that. So there's this beautiful scene of just Alan Rickman bathed in sunlight, tasting guacamole for the first time. And I think he has a bottle of wine with him maybe from one of the places he's visited. So he's drinking this wine and having this guacamole. And it's just the best on-screen snack you've ever seen. Wow. Um, and it always stuck with me and, and came back to me when I heard about him last week. So That sounds like bottle a good shock. off-screen snack. I could go for some oh, guacamole. Right? Mm. Uh, all right. June. So we're in a season where a lot of new TV shows are coming along and they all kind of blend. There's a lot now of prestige TV. It all kind of looks alike. But there is a show that starts next week, which has me absolutely fascinated because I can't quite put my finger on it. It's called Outsiders. It's on WGN America, which is a network that whenever people are writing about shows that appear in it, they always say on WGN America of all places, as if you're not expecting anything good there. I guess it used to be a sports channel and now they're having some original shows. Um, And it's just weird. It's about a community that live kind of off the grid, or in this case, up a mountain. And that mountain is now wanting to be exploited for its coal deposits. And so uh, this family, which is a family, there many of them are descended from the same people who came from, I guess, Ireland. And they don't go to school. They live exclusively there. When they do go into the town to get supplies to make moonshine, they go in their ATVs and they just run right into the store in them and they don't have any money. It's weird. Like, there's elements of Sons of Anarchy. There's elements of every kind of separate community show. It was written by the playwright Peter Matei. It's helped by Peter Tolan, who's a great showrunner from way back. So I don't know. Maybe it'll be terrible, but I've seen three episodes and I'm kind of fascinated by it and it's called Outsiders. Ah, that sounds intriguing. All right. Uh, I'm not sure I'm endorsing the thing I'm about to describe but I will describe it nonetheless because it's the most fascinating thing I've encountered in the last week. So over the holiday break, my boys watched their first movie. We we gave them their first full cinema experience. Wow. We saw Finding Nemo, which seemed like a decent first bet in the kid movie genre. Now that we've seen virtual reality and I know that I have like 2.5 years to show them every every movie I ever want them to see before they think all flatties are lame. <laughs> um, so they liked it all right. They they thought it was pretty appealing. They know all about clownfish now. They talk sometimes about Nemo. They didn't find the sharks too scary, but a subject of recurring concern since then has been the anglerfish. There's a scene where they go very down deep into some kind of trench and they encounter an anglerfish's glowing light, and then the anglerfish's big, scary teeth. Ah. And Nemo's father and Marlin and Dory find their way away. Don't worry. They find Nemo. They get <laughs> Spoiler, guys. They get away from the anglerfish. But you spend some scary moments in the company of this big anglerfish. So every so often, the boys ask us, like, where are the anglerfish? And are the, ang- you know, the anglerfish are scary, but they're not going to eat us, and we have to reassure them. This prompted some anglerfish googling in my home, which resulted in the discovery of the sexual habits of anglerfish. Are you familiar with the sexual habits of anglerfish? let's just say no. (laughs) Okay. But I want to be. You definitely do. 
Anglerfish reproduce by something called sexual parasitism. Basically, the females have their big lights. They're attracting food, but also potential mates. The mates, the male fish, look totally different. They're just these, like, skinny little minnows. Without a light? I don't think they have lights. When they reach the female fish, they bite into her flesh. They just, like, latch on somewhere. And then they fuse to her. The rest of their body withers away. Their bone fuses with her bone. Their flesh merges with her flesh. And then they just hang on to her parasitically because they're so deep down in the bottom of the ocean that if they ever let go, they might not find each other again. And then he just lives off of the food she consumes and injects sperm into her every so often when it's time to reproduce. And sometimes she could get like three or four or eight of these dudes just hanging off of her injecting sperm every so often. (gasps) So wow. basically, they're enacting on on grand scale an ovum with sperm surrounding it, right? I mean, it's like yeah. their bodies become those things. Exactly. I didn't think of it that way, but that is a lovely... except that more than one can can fertilize at a time. Well, somehow. I guess that's how you end up with twins sometimes <laughs> if they're identical. But yes, uh, yeah, essentially, it's 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 that reproductive practice in the deep bottom of the sea, My God. and perhaps on a similar premise, which is you're so desperate to find the thing that could reproduce your genome, but you're down in the dark. And you can't find them. And apparently the male of this type of anglerfish have very good senses of smell. Mm. So they, they the light is actually less pertinent than the smell in finding the female. And then you just latch on and fuse your bone to their bone. You know what? Somebody needs to write an anglerfish love song. That right. is so intense. Exactly. Baby, yeah. show me your light and I will burrow into your bones. Well, I was thinking about it in light of 45 years. Don't laugh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Rampling as anglerfish. (laughs) She would be a great anglerfish. I would totally watch the anglerfish biopic with Rampling. But it is, there is something of that of like they're fused Mm -hmm. together into one thing. And then when they suddenly have to see themselves as two things again, it freaks them out. Thank goodness they weren't actually anglerfish. It leaves them more options at the end of the film. (laughs) And anyway, in any event, anglerfish reproduction. Can't say I recommend it, but I endorse knowing about it because it will blow your mind. I'm shaken. To my very fused bone. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, thanks, Dana. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, June. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our engineer today is Sam Dingman. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And the Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on itunes.com slash panoply. Finally, and I don't know why we put this last, but we do, our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and June Thomas, I'm Julia Turner. We'll talk to you next week. Ask me how I knew my true 